Great to see everyone today. Welcome to Redeemer Church. And uh, it really truly has been a sweet season. The sweet season just has continued. As uh, last week we were able to celebrate seven baptisms in one day, which was awesome. And uh, yeah, you could clap that up. And just to see so many people really uh, take that step of faith, nothing short of amazing. I just wanted to commend you all as well, just to be uh, sticking in as far as everything that we're, we're going and covering here in First Peter. We're, we're talking about submission and talking about suffering. So, you know, the first part of First Peter, we were talking about the, the salvation of the believer. And then we spent four weeks talking about the submission of the believer. No, we aren't going to change the name of our church to Submission Church that we were joking around about. But, you know, those are tough topics. And then last week, Travis led us into uh, the first of a few weeks as far as the suffering of the believer is concerned. And, and these are tough topics, usually uh, not topics that make it to the top of the list as far as things that we really want to hear about and step into. Uh, however, they're so, so important. And, and today we are again looking at this topic of suffering as a believer. We're looking at our example that has been set before us, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our example to look to when we're in these seasons, these dark seasons, these difficult seasons where it feels like everything's an uphill battle. Today, we could look to Jesus. We could look to the suffering of Jesus. We could look to the proclamation of Jesus. And finally, we could look to the triumph of Jesus. We not only look to our Lord Jesus Christ as our suffering Savior, but we could look to our Lord Jesus Christ as our triumphant King. And that's really what we're focusing on today, and this is where we're going. And so this is very important because uh, today we're going to be challenged. We're going to be challenged as, as far as this topic of suffering is concerned, but another area in which we are going to be challenged over is our intellect. And what do I mean by that? Well, uh, our intellect is going to be challenged today because our passage today, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22, is actually, some would say, some of the most controversial passages in all of God's word. And what do I mean by that? Well, some would say there's up to 180 different interpretations of this passage today, specifically uh, verse 19. And so, so I know, guys, that the Lord's church has been around for 2,000 years and Re Redeemer Church has been around for six months. But um, there's no doubt in my mind that I will bring the divine enlightenment you all need. And scholars have been searching for, for millennia as far as the interpretation of this passage. No, I'm just kidding. Lord, I need, we need your help today. So, but we're, we're tackling some of these topics uh, such as penal substitutionary atonement. And so, well, what does that mean? Well, there be many individuals that would actually be uh, detractors or dissidents from that and to say that how, how can the Lord impart essentially cosmic child abuse onto his beloved son through the horrendous act of crucifixion. And so that in of itself is somewhat controversial. Uh, but even more so, what does it mean that Jesus proclaimed to the spirits in prison? And what is this saying? Is this talking about some type of universal salvation, a second chance, a purgatory, a holding place? Is there an, another opportunity for us to give our life to Christ? He proclaimed, he preached to the spirits 
And so, and then also, how does the story of Noah uh, come into the fold? And how does the story of Noah really provide a link as far as a baptism is concerned? And so, and you know, it says these words, baptism now saves you. Now, now hold up a second. I, I thought we are a church that believes in believer's baptism, not uh, baptismal regeneration. And so, so why is Peter using these words, baptism now saves you? And so, so if your head's spinning a little bit, that's okay, because welcome to 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. In, in fact, R.C. Sproul says this, which I would strongly affirm. This is a text about which I am to open to correction and reproof. And I will be quick to ask the apostle Peter, when I see him in glory, what he meant by these very enigmatic words. And I too will stand by that statement. So so here we go. Uh, Let's jump in. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. This is what the word of God has for Redeemer Church today. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water." baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so as you can see, There's much ground to cover today, and we're going to cover many of these intricacies and many of these beauties in today's passage. But what we really need to look at uh, again is where does the follower of Jesus go? Where are we to go in the midst of dark and difficult times? Peter is saying there is one place to go. We could look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ in the suffering of Christ, in the proclamation of Christ, and in the triumph of Christ. Christ defeated sin and death on the cross, and we can, again, look to him as our suffering Savior and look to him as our triumphant King. And so we're going to look at this passage today and break it down into three sections. And the first section is the suffering of Christ. The suffering of Christ. First Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He's going to bring us to God. And here we could see Peter is trying to bridge the gap. He's trying to establish the solidarity. He's trying to make the connection between our own sufferings and the sufferings of Christ. So last week, Travis walked us through this, that we could look to the suffering of Christ and, and for righteousness' sake, and then we could look today, we could look to the example that has been set before us in Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to allow suffering to be the final word for us. Why? Because it was not the final word for Jesus Christ. And if we remember, we could look back to 1 Peter 2.21, For to this 
You have been called. And anytime we see that word called, we can't just skim over it. Because we remember that we have been called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We have been called out of darkness and into the marvelous light. For it says, for to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And so, so in today's message, we could see that Peter is placing the focus on the purpose of Christ's sufferings. What, what is the purpose of this? But first of all, he, he uses this word he, that he suffered once for sins. And it's not something that had to be repeated. It was once for all. It was definitive. It was the, this, I did this first service too, not divisive, decisive, okay? It was definitive, decisive, and absolute. It was ultimate. It was once for all. We could look to Hebrews 9.27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So we could see this um, definitive and de- decisive and ultimate once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we could see that this um, sacrifice was sufficient. And what did Christ suffer for? Well, the obvious answer to that is our sins. He, he suffered for our sins. We see this prepositional phrase, for sins, all throughout Scripture, up to 40 times when referring to his sacrifice for us. And because Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, He committed no sin. He led the sinless life. He was the only one that is the the payment that is worthy to atone for our sins. The righteous died for the unrighteous. The just died for the unjust. And because of this righteousness, because of his sinless nature, he is the only worthy substitute that can atone for our sins. And really the end result is this. What does the the passage say? That he may bring us to God. And this is the good news that we receive today. That Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection on the cross has brought us to God. And that is the good news. This is something that we should rejoice over through the blood of the lamb. Jesus Christ brings us to God. He is the bridge. He is the advocate He is our mediator. He is the substitute. And so to summarize this verse, we can see that through Christ's suffering, through his death, he paid the penalty, penal. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous substitute. And because Christ brought us to God, our sins have been atoned for. And this is where we arrive at the term penal substitutionary atonement. And so, and this term is actually under great attack for many reasons. Because many would ask the question, well, that's not the God I know. That's not the loving, benevolent God that I I follow. Because how could that God actually impart cosmic child abuse 
through the horrendous act of crucifixion to his beloved son. And not to get stuck in the weeds in this because there's lots to get stuck in the weeds with today's passage. But penal substitutionary atonement or PSA, it's actually the heart of the gospel. It is the heart of the gospel. Because here's the thing. With no one to pay the penalty for the sins that we have committed, then we still are under the wrath and the judgment and the enmity of God. Jesus Christ was the only one that was worthy to atone for our sins. And the reason I bring this up, because there's many individuals and many even churches that don't like to preach or teach on this topic and why. Because it focuses on the wrath of God. It requires us to look inward at our own sin. It requires us to say, like, I can't save myself. In a world full of universalism, many roads lead to God. How dare you actually say that Jesus Christ is the only way to eternal life? That is so close-minded of you. That's not something that people love to embrace. But again, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks at times, we've talked about this verse, what, what it means to be in submission. And we talk about this verse that, hey, we don't have to wield retaliation, revenge, and vindication. Why? Because it's the Lord's to avenge. Remember, the Lord's the avenger. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And what we've talked about is our sin requires payment. And our sin is either going to be paid for through the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ on the cross, or without that, our sin must be paid in an eternity in hell. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, is death. If, if we do not look to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and say, Jesus, save me. I will repent and, and hold fast to your righteousness. If we do not recognize Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior through repentance, we still remain under the judgment of God and we are eternally lost. This is why we regularly sing out these words in our hymn, In Christ Alone. May we never look at these lyrics in the same fashion. Till on that cross that Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. And this should be fuel and food for our soul. This should be something that we should wake up to and hold fast to each and every day that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for us so that we may have life, eternal life with God. Jesus Christ brought us to God. That's something that we should hold on to. As Charles Spurgeon states, that, that's something that we should chew on regularly. He states this, I do think that this is the grandest truth in heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, the just one, died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. It is meat to my soul. I can feed on it every day and all the day. 
<laughs> what a beautiful statement. Amen, unless you're vegetarian. So the first point is very clear. The suffering of Christ. This is what we're to look to in our, in our times, in our moments of difficult seasons. And now the last part of verse 18 through verse 20, this is where things get a little interesting. It states this, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now from these verses we could arrive at the second place that we should look to as far as when we are in the midst of suffering. We look to the suffering of Jesus Christ and now we are going to look to the proclamation of Jesus Christ. The proclamation of Christ. Now again, with all of the various, remember 180 up to different interpretation of the passages, uh, most commentators would probably arrive on three or four and much of that really centers around Verse 19. Now, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, now there are these doctrines that we hold fast to as far as the orthodoxy of our faith. These are the things that make us brothers and sisters in Christ. So, but now, if we don't agree on these primary doctrinal tenets, well, well, then we're not really on the same page. You know, this is a different religion or a cult. And then now underneath those things, we have these things called distinctives that would say, hey, maybe we're going to interpret, uh, pa- interpret passages a little bit differently. And this is where you would see some of the divides as far as denominations are concerned. But we are still brothers and sisters in Christ. We believe in the same God, the same Jesus, the same standing before for God. But now, now what we're talking about today doesn't even make it to the list as far as distinctives are concerned. So don't, don't say, hey, I, I can't be a redeemer because I don't ascribe to how John interprets uh, 1 Peter 3, 19, okay? So don't leave the church over this, okay? But, um, but it's very important because it's, it's amazing to see the swath of how some of even some of the greatest theologians of, uh, you know, these past couple centuries land on different spots as far as these interpretations are concerned. But before we jump in as far as who is Christ proclaiming to in the prisons? We do have to ask a couple of basic questions. And the first one is, where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go during this time? And who, who did he proclaim to? And who are these spirits in prison? I think that's a, uh, you know, a question that demands an answer. And then also, how does Noah fit in to all this? And again, what is the link between Noah and baptism. So now this is not a doctrinal or a doctoral defense of these four points. And so just for the brevity of today's message, we're, we're just going to give some general overview of four different points of view. And the first one is Jesus preached through Noah. Jesus preached through Noah. This is uh, actually a very widely held point of view that the spirit of Christ was preaching through the person of Noah. And the spirits were all of those uh, outside of Noah's eight family members who perished in the flood. And those individuals are now in prison or eternal torment. Some reasons to support this is if we look to 2 Peter 2.5, we could see 
that Noah is referred to as a herald of righteousness. Well, who else would be referred to as a herald of righteousness? Well, we could say John the Baptist, but many would obviously say, well, Jesus Christ was the herald of righteousness. So this is where they would arrive at the fact that Jesus Christ was actually preaching through the person of Noah. They would also say this, that of all the Old Testament saints that Peter could have uh, appointed and really talked about here, why was it specifically Noah? So this is where they would arrive at the fact. And, um, you know, many theologians, even Wayne Grudem, who wrote Systematic Theology, would arrive at this point that Jesus preached to Noah. Now the next one is Jesus preached to the lost spirits in Hades. Now this view would hold to the position that Jesus Christ descended into hell to offer a second chance of salvation. And, and so this would probably be the only one that would take a step into a borderline heresy. Because nowhere in the Bible is there an inference that we have another opportunity outside of this life to give our life to Jesus. As we just read in Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for man to die once... Then comes judgment, okay? And so, so this type of view, this point of view that Jesus preached to the lost spirits in Hades would be speaking into a type of purgatory or a holding place or a second chance of salvation. In addition, this would misuse the word proclaim, which we'll talk about in a second. But it also is not talking about all lost souls over the course of history. Now, if it was, then it wouldn't say that they were talking about the people in the days of Noah. Uh, so, and so that's very important because if it was talking about this being a second chance for salvation, it would at some place say we're talking about lost souls throughout history. And so, so I think we would all agree on the fact primarily that we don't get a second chance. That this life matters. This life counts. That Jesus Christ died once for all. And we have one life to live. And so, and still yet a third view, and again a view held by many, would be that Jesus preached to liberate the Old Testament saints. The Old Testament saints. And this, um, would, this view would say that Jesus Christ went to rescue, liberate, or take with him the Old Testament saints who are in a place of rest, and comfort, according to the Old Testament, that place would be referred to as Sheol. And as we look back to, if we were to look to Luke 16, that the New Testament uh, place of Sheol is Hades. And based on how you interpret Luke 16, uh, we could see that Hades may have two different realms. And why would we say that? Because Lazarus, who is by Abraham's bosom or Ab Abraham's side, they were speaking to the rich person, the, the rich ruler, who was at the hot place, the hot side of Hades, a place of torment, and that's where we would refer to as hell. Because what does Abraham state at this moment? He states, between us and you a great chasm have been, has been fixed. And so that would be speaking into a separation of Hades. One being a place where maybe the Old Testament saints were presiding and one being a place of eternal uh, torment, which would be hell. And so, so 
Now, regardless of your interpretation of Luke 16 and your interpretation of Sheol and, and Hades and heaven and hell and how it pertains to these passages, one of the reasons that I would move away from this point of view is that it really is somewhat of a stretch to, to really take that. Because if we really uh, go through the passage line by line, word by word, uh, we could see that there isn't any inference to that. Now, you could make a case for that, but it would be somewhat of a, a complicated, navigating, meandering case to arrive that Jesus was preaching to the Old Testament saints to rescue them. And so, so again, uh, with the covering of R.C. Sproul, uh, I would say that I will be quick to ask the Apostle Peter in his glory what he meant by this text. And so, and so, but I would say that this final point of view is the point of view that is most widely held and actually makes the most amount of sense if we go through this passage line by line, word by word. And that's this. Jesus proclaimed, proclaimed his resurrection to demonic powers. And this would be a, a post-resurrection appearance, not during the three days in which he was buried. You know, the Apostles' Creed, we have to remember that it's not Scripture, whether or not it is to be held every single uh, dot and iota in there, because it was not written by the Apostles. It was adopted centuries after that, but descended into hell. Many would look at the Apostles' Creed and put a little asterisk uh, by that, but um, it does say here, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then chronologically after that, it says, then he went and proclaimed to these spirits in prison. And so you could see that he was made alive in the spirit, and then he went and proclaimed as far as the order of that verse is concerned. But now again, who, who are these spirits in prison? It says that these spirits were disobedient during the days of Noah. Well, what are we told about and um, what do we hear in Genesis 6? It speaks of angels who were sons of God that went and took daughters of man. And now we're not going to go down the road of Nephilim or the book of Enoch or anything along those lines, but we can see that these can be referred to as fallen angels who took the daughters of man. And this is very similar to the fall of man in Genesis as, as far as that uh, the apple was took by, by Eve. And so um, the Lord recognized this evil and sent judgment through the flood uh, stating that he will blot out mankind, he'll blot out man. And so, so that's just kind of a, a little bit of a dive as far as looking to Genesis 6. But another one would be this. When we look at this word for spirits, the Greek word is pneumacin. And pneumacin is referred to as evil spirits. And the two other places in which this word pneumacin is used in Luke 4.36 and 1 Timothy 4.1. It's referring to an evil spirit. And then anytime the plural of spirit is used, spirits, all throughout God's word, it is referring to an angel or demon, with the exception of one, um, one time used in Hebrews. But I would say probably the most important reason why this point of view should be taken 
and I feel like is of great importance if we look to 2 Peter 2.4. 2 Peter 2.4, where Peter uses this very similar framework and this very similar verbiage in a separate letter when referring to this story. So it states this in 1 Peter 2, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 2, uh, verses 4 and 5. It says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So we could see some very similar words. We could see in the time of Noah, we could see angels were cast into hell and held in chains, held in prisons until the judgment. All of this sounds very similar to our our verses today. We could also see the same thing in Jude 6 where angels are kept in chains, eternal chains, under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day in Revelation. And so all of these verses would really speak into that this is indeed who Jesus Christ was proclaiming to. But to really bring this full circle, we're going to look at one more word. And this is the word used for proclaim. The Greek word used here is caruso. And caruso is used for to herald or to preach. And so we could look at other versions, they don't use the word proclaim. Instead, they may use the word preach. And I would say this, and many commentators would agree with this. If Christ were trying to share the gospel and preach to lost souls, then the word here would not be caruso. The, the word here would be the Greek word euangelizo. And euangelizo means evangelizing the good news. The good news being euangelion. And so we see a different word usage, caruso and euangelion. As far as if Jesus Christ were preaching for a second opportunity for individuals to be saved, this word caruso would not be used. And now what are we saying with all of this? Jesus Christ was proclaiming his victory. Because in ancient days, what took place when a king would conquer a country, a province, he would go into that town, he would go into that country, and he would herald his victory. He would herald his victory over his vanquished foes. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ was doing because ever since the fall of Satan and him taking a third of the angels with him, there has been a cosmic battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, between angels and demons. And Satan has declared victory, perceived victory, many times throughout all of history. The fall of man. We got man to sin and therefore this is going to be our world, our dominion. This is victory, a perceived victory to him and his angels, his demons. And we could look to all throughout all of Old Testament and New Testament stories, the lineage of Jesus Christ. How many times has the lineage of Jesus Christ been under great peril, right? Even as we look to the Gospels, right? 
Jesus Christ. He was almost killed. What do you think? Who do you think was behind Herod? Who do you think was behind his crucifixion? Who do you think was behind his death? You see, they thought they had won. They thought they had Jesus Christ dead and buried in the grave. They knew that their time was coming, and they thought this was their victory. Matthew 8, 29, when Jesus Christ was confronting the demoniac, and, and basically they were, he, he sent them into a herd of pigs, and behold, they cried out. And the demon said this, What have you to do with us, O son of man, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us? before the time. Well, what is the time? Well, the time is Jesus Christ proclaiming his victory through his death and resurrection, the finished work on the cross. Satan and his demons, they thought they had this victory. Jesus Christ was dead and buried in his grave, but praise be to God, Jesus Christ was resurrected out of the grave. He defeated both sin and death in his victory, and in his proclamation to the spirits in prison. He was heralding his victory and putting Satan and his demons to open shame. Colossians 2, 14 and 16, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus' victory speech put Satan and his demons to open shame. And Peter, what he's doing in this passage, he is giving us a window into what took place. Because you can better believe that the demons and Satan never forgot his proclamation on that day, nor should we. Nor should we. Jesus Christ is victorious. This is the victory of Christ. This is the triumph of Christ. This is our salvation. Jesus Christ heralded his victory over sin and death, and in that we are to rejoice in our salvation. And what is the salvation here from this passage? What is the salvation that Peter is trying to convey to us that we now have, that he's done all the way from 1 Peter 1.1? What is this salvation? This salvation is being saved from judgment. Just as Noah's family, the eight, entered into the ark and were saved from the flood waters, we too have been safely brought through the water, through the ark of Jesus Christ. Just as these eight righteous individuals were saved from destruction, Noah's family, we too as a remnant, as a small minority, have been saved from judgment. What are we told in Matthew seven fourteen? For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Those who find it are few. Our saving from judgment isn't too far removed from the story of Noah. We love the story of Noah. It's a story that we who have grown up in the church have embraced since maybe we were little children and felt boards, right? Right? Felt boards? 
Like two and two, knows family. This is awesome. But make no mistake, the story of Noah is about the Lord keeping his promise. But it's about something else too. It's about his judgment. We, we see all of, you know, the story of Noah. What we don't see is the countless souls that met their destruction on that day in the water. So we survived these waters as well. The people in Noah's day, they were destroyed. But Noah's family was brought on the ark. And we as believers have been placed on the ark of Jesus Christ. And that's the connection that Peter is conveying to us. We did not stay, and we do not stay in the baptism waters, but we are resurrected into newness of life according to Romans 6.4. This is the symbol, baptism. Baptism. This is the symbol. This is the identifying mark. This is the team jersey. This is the wedding ring in which we put on to say that we are a follower of Jesus Christ. We identify with him in his suffering. We identify with him in his death. We identify with him in his watery burial. And we identify with him in his resurrection. Praise be to God. We identify with Christ through baptism. 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, which corresponds to all of those things, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Didn't we just talk about last week with our baptism that there's nothing in the water that saves a person? I can't just, uh, you know, just pop into that tub and all of a sudden I'm saved. That's not how it works. But what is Peter saying when he states this? Baptism now saves you. And this is where many denominations would arrive at this term, baptismal regeneration. And so the difference between pedo-baptism and infant baptism versus believer's baptism or credo-baptism. We did a message on that during our Ecclesia sermon series, the two ordinances that we talked about this at great length. And, and we at Redeemer Church ascribe to credo-baptism, believer's baptism. This comes after a decision to follow after Jesus Christ. Repentance of your sins. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. So why is it that Peter says... Baptism now saves you. Well, we could see from our verse that he is very quick to immediately add, right after he says, says this, that not, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, so Peter is not saying that there's something in the water that saves a person. He's not saying that immersing yourself in the water saves you. He's not saying that there's a cleansing of dirt that takes place that has any type of saving effects. What he is saying is that there is a pledge. There is an appeal to God for a good conscience. We are saying, Lord, 
save me. Save me from judgment. There's nothing I can do in my own power to save myself. So I'm looking to you, Jesus. I'm appealing to you. I'm pledging to you. I'm repenting and saying, Lord, save me. Take me on the ark. Save me from the waters of judgment. Take me to safety through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A good analogy is this. I, I, if, I'm a single, if I'm a single person, I can't just go find a wedding ring, right? And put it on and say, hey, I'm married. I, I can't just, you know, jump into that water and say that I'm saved. What saves? What, what, what allows a married person to actually be married? It's the vows. It's the vows that you take on your wedding day. That you say, I am going to commit the rest of my life to you. And what are our vows? It's saying just what I said. Jesus Christ, you are my Lord. You are my Savior. I can't save myself. I'm repenting of my sin. I'm holding fast to your righteousness. And because of what you did on the cross, the penal substitutionary atonement, I will follow after you for all of my days. I am a follower of Jesus. And because of that, I will take a step into baptism. Because just as a married person wouldn't go throughout their days without their wedding ring on, neither should a Christian go about their days without being baptized. And what are we told in Acts 8? Well, when Philip, you know, was with the Ethiopian eunuch, what did he say? What did the Ethiopian say? He said this, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Well, the answer to that question is nothing. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin, recognizing him as Lord and Savior, nothing prevents you from being baptized. Yeah, I feel the conviction in this room for all of us who haven't been baptized, right? But we've spent a great deal of time talking through Christ's proclamation, talking through baptism. But again, let us return to what is it that Peter's trying to convey through all of this. He's using all of this, remember, as an encouragement in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of the dark nights that don't seem to have a morning, in the midst of the difficult times and seasons when suffering and oppression is knocking at the door, when the weight is crushing and the fear is consuming, Peter is telling us this. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to the suffering of Christ. Look to the proclamation of Christ. Look to the identification that we have through baptism and look to this. Look to my triumph. Look to the triumph of Christ. Look to the triumph of Christ as our battle cry, as our anthem. The triumph of Christ is our third and final point. And what are we told in verse 22? Who has gone into heaven 
and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. When we are going through difficult times, we could hold fast to the fact that Jesus Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He is on our side. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. He is on our side in all the angels, all the authorities, all demonic powers, including Satan himself, are subject to his rule. And this is what we need to land on. This is what we're going to be talking about in these next few weeks. Where are we to go in the midst of difficult, dark seasons of our life? Are we going to be the follower of Jesus that just throws in the towel and says, Lord, where were you? Where were you during that time? And just say, hey, you know, I'm just going to just do whatever I, I feel like because the Lord wasn't there for me. Or are we going to be the follower of Jesus that says, suffering, these difficult seasons, these uphill battles, these times in our life where it doesn't even feel like we could see straight. Are we going to be the followers of Jesus that say, Lord, I can trust you. I can trust in your goodness. I, I could trust that, that I am yours and you shepherd me as a good shepherd shepherds his sheep. And, and we could trust in the fact that Jesus Christ is above our suffering. That our suffering in life may oftentimes be for our own good and the glory of God. And the outpouring of all of this is praise. Praise. Our suffering Savior laid down his life for us on the cross. The righteous for the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, and through his death, we have been brought to God. And we celebrate in this the beauty of reconciliation, the beauty of penal substitutionary atonement. We have been delivered on the ark of salvation safely through the water by Jesus Christ, who has ascended into heaven. So right now, church, stand up. Stand in the suffering of Christ Stand in the proclamation of Christ. Stand in the triumph of Christ. And stand as we sing the words to this last song. Let's praise the one who paid my debt and raises life up from the dead. Jesus Christ paid it all. <laughs>